Navigating the Datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to episode 12 of the Datascape podcast. I'm your host, Chris Presley. Recently, Microsoft announced Azure Cosmos DB, the successor for DocumentDB, and I kind of went meh and moved on to other announcements. I was never really interested in DocDB anyway. Then one of our Datascape regulars, Werner Chavez, called me up to tell me how excited he was and how significant he thinks that this development is to cloud-based databases. By the end of the phone call, I knew we had another interesting episode on our hands. So I've invited Werner back to the podcast today to tell us more about Azure Cosmos DB and why it's significant and why we should be paying attention to it. Hey, Werner, welcome back. Hey, Chris, how's it going? Glad to be back into the Datascape. It's great to have you back. Folks, Warner has been a regular on the Dayscape podcast, at least I think this is his fourth episode. If you want to know more about him, his full intro and closer is in episode number one. Warner, why don't you just give us a brief overview of your who you are and what your career has been to date? Yeah, for sure. So real quick, I am a principal consultant at Pythian, and I work especially with the Microsoft Data Platform, which I'm also a Microsoft Data Platform MVP. And this is about my 11th year now working with Microsoft Data Platform products. Obviously, nowadays, spending a lot of time with cloud stuff, right? The infrastructure as a service, the path services, trying to keep up with Azure, Amazon, Google. It's an exciting time right now for Data Pro in our industry. Absolutely. And the changes in developments and innovation is, it's just, I don't know, it's a deluge. And it's, it's a real challenge to keep up. I'm glad to have experts like you to come on the podcast and help and enlighten our listeners. So with that, let's dive right in. What is Azure Cosmos DB? Yeah, so Cosmos DB, first of all, it's funny because, I mean, obviously Microsoft wants people to see that Cosmos is kind of like a new thing, but it's not, right? Cosmos is like the next generation of what you said, document DB. But the changes are significant enough that really just saying it was document DB version 2.0 would have been a disservice to what the team has really done with the product and how they've really grown it now to version 2.0. So if we had to come up with like an academic definition, I would say Cosmos DB is a NoSQL cloud database built for horizontal scaling and geo-replication capabilities. So that would be my, you know, mouthful type of definition. But really what it is, is a, you know, a very cool NoSQL database that can hold its own against some of the other competition offerings, such as Dynamo from Amazon, or the really new, very exciting as well, Google Spanner database that was just released a couple of months ago on beta, right? In general, I think it's like a lot of people like yourself just thought, oh, DocumentDB, whatever. But now that Cosmos has released some of the new functionalities and Microsoft is doing a new marketing push, I really think that the product itself deserves a lot more interest and curiosity than it's gotten. And I hope really that's my objective here with our podcast is that I can convince some people to take a second look and see that it's actually a very exciting product. Okay. And since it is the newest iteration of DocumentDB, is it going to replace DocumentDB? So... Every single DocumentDB client is now a Cosmos client. So for everybody listening that doesn't even have a clue what DocumentDB was, DocumentDB was basically same thing, horizontally scalable, NoSQL database, but purely document database style, right? So we're talking about ingesting JSON, so usually hierarchical documents, right? And querying them through a SQL interface, which I really like the fact that it has a SQL interface. DocumentDB was like that. Now, I, first point, the name DocumentDB might not have been the best name in the world because I know I spoke to a lot of people that know, knew what Mongo was 
But when they thought of document DD, they thought it was something like a SharePoint and, and something that where you would just like upload literally like documents and then you would just like query them and stuff like that, right? So it's not what it is, right? It's a document database, which means it consumes JSON that, that you can then manipulate and you can export and you can query it's very much like what you would do in a relational database, except that first it's JSON. So it's a hierarchical representation. And second, it's because it's JSON as well, it's, it's schema free, right? You can have a document that has some fields. You can have a document that's missing some fields. There is no strong typing as far as the schema is related, right? Okay. So the features that got you really excited about Cosmos DB, let's start there. What were some of the features that excited you and that we should know about? Yeah. So with this new release of Cosmos DB, there's really, there's like three or four different axes that we can explore through our podcast in terms of, you know, it's really what is actually exciting. So first is that it has multiple programming models now. So what they've done is that Cosmos itself is like, you know, it's a database that comes with all this like really cool flexibility in terms of performance. It comes with these really cool geo-replication capabilities. And when it's actually time to build your application, you can select the programming model that best fits your use case. So it's no longer just a document database if you want it. You can now actually use it as a key value pair database if you want to. If you, let's say you have a simpler use case and you just want to have, you know, IDs and values and that's it. Or if you want to do even graph, now it has a graph interface. So if you want to represent something that is a network, whatever that network is, it could be devices, it could be something geographical, it could be networking people, right? So anything that graph databases are good for, they're good for modeling problems that are about connections, right? So it has a graph API as well, if that's what you want to do. And further down the line, Microsoft is also working on a wide column API. So we're talking about something very similar to, let's say, what Dynamo is and very similar to what Cassandra is, right? So we're talking about tables that are not, they're not fixed schema, but they are you know, they look more like literally just like rows and columns, or you can have even sets inside a column. So they're not fully normalized, right? The classic NoSQL type of, of table. So they're working on that coming down the pipeline as well. So current state is we have a document API that's through SQL. So very easy to adopt. We have a, the preview of the graph API, and we have a key value API. And down the line, we're going to have now a wide column API coming. So, you know, future is looking really, really cool as well in terms of the stuff that they're building where they basically take this like core database product and expose all these different APIs into the way that you can use it to fit it to your particular use case. So really that's, that'll be the number one thing that I think is really exciting about the product. Okay. Now that really speaks to the programmers out there. Let's shift more to the database administrators or the data platform consultants that might be working with it. What's so special about the replication that you mentioned? So geo-replication, the geo-replication capabilities to me are really exciting because first of all, when we put it next to the competition, there is no other NoSQL database in the world, in the public cloud that gives you the geo-replication capabilities that you can get with Cosmos. So for example, Dynamo right now is a single region product. And yes, you can replicate it to other regions, but there is no built-in service from Amazon to do so, right? Amazon gives you a library that you can do, and then you can use Dynamo streams to replicate to other regions. So that's great. Yes, it's possible to do, but you have to roll it on your own. So to me, that's especially for a past service, that's kind of like a cop-out because I shouldn't have to roll it on my own. Next, we have the, the other big competitor, like I mentioned, is Google Spanner, which is right now in beta. So Spanner is definitely going to be multi-geo. Google has come out and said it right away. You know, this is going to be a multi-geographical service. 
but it's just not there yet. So maybe Spanner down the line would be good competition to the Cosmos geo-replication capabilities, but right now it's still single region. So if I compare them apples to apples today in terms of geo-replication capabilities, Cosmos comes out on top because I can just today go and it's turnkey, right? I can go on the portal, pick my Cosmos container and say, I want it replicated from, let's say, New York City to Tokyo. And it's just like, literally like four or five clicks and that's it it's done it's in tokyo and at the same time it's not just one copy you can have multiple copies around the world i can put it in at the same time in california if i wanted to and then i have a copy there this is another exciting thing that we're probably going to explore more but once we're dealing with databases that are distributed around the world then it's when it gets cool to talk about the consistency models as well that cosmos exposes that are not usually not as commonly available to other products and that again are a big differentiator in the offering right right the term often uses eventually consistent and that's your only option yeah in in researching cosmos for the episode i saw that there are several options as well as some different slas do you want to talk a little bit about what those are for our audience yeah so let's talk about the slas because because i think that's an interesting thing too so dynamo if you go on amazon's website dynamo doesn't have a public sla If you go on Google's website, Spanner has an SLA for uptime. So what's different about the SLA for Cosmos is that it not only has an SLA for uptime, but they have added an SLA for throughput, for latency, and for consistency, which is very interesting. Now, some people might say these SLAs, they just cover like a small percentage of the service. They're just a marketing thing because, I mean, you know, all I care about is my database being up or not, or if it's slow, yeah, they're going to pay me back or it's going to be peanuts or cents on the dollar, whatever. To be honest, my answer to all those will be, so what? You know, nobody else is making it. So if somebody's giving you extra guarantees, why wouldn't you take them, right? And if you think about the amount of people that use Azure, it might be cents on the dollar for a particular client, but broadly for Microsoft, it might be a lot of money to start paying for SLAs for, let's say, throughput or for latency, Right. So I like the approach of putting the money, you know, putting the money on the table and saying we're willing to bet that we're not going to do any worse than this. Because overall, if you look at it globally, it's probably quite a bit of money that could be spent on, on having to give credits to these SLAs. So I do see that as, as a good as a good direction. And I do think that clients in general should look at that as like, you know, a show of trust or a show of how comfortable the provider is in the quality of their product that they're willing to put different SLAs like this on the table, right? Okay. What are the SLAs? So it's, I believe uptime is about four nines. There's also a throughput SLA. So it basically says if you have a provision capacity of a certain amount of units, because that's the way that the service is provisioned, is in request units. So a write or a read is a different amount of request units, depending on what they do. So those is the same. If you all go over, you know, the guarantee four nines of requests are always going to be half capacity to be done. They also guarantee under certain conditions, like I believe it's like a one kilobyte document, read or write. They have boundaries on how many milliseconds that can take. And then consistency is basically if I request a specific document or request a specific record with a given level of consistency that the service can actually do it, right? And again, it's four nines all throughout all these different dimensions, right? Which is very interesting as well when you think about it. When you think about, for example, a service like Dynamo, 
it's strong or eventual, right? But it's a single region. So when you think about eventually in a single region, obviously it's very small. Amazon has super fast networks connected their availability zones in a single data in a single region. So it doesn't become a big deal. Consistency is not a big deal when the distances are very small, right? Because right. because it, it converges really fast. But once you're thinking about replicating from New York to Tokyo, First of all, there's the speed of light, right? You're never going to be able to replicate faster than that. And it's not like our computer networks go at the speed of light anyway. There's usually reliability issues between the cabling. There's usually of the noise, even if you're connected directly to fiber optic, it's not really the speed of light proper. So as we get these distances bigger, these different consistency models become more useful and right. make a big difference as to what your solution that you want to build. Right. right. And and as you mentioned, you know, if I've using DynamoDB, if I've, the term you used was rolled my own uh, replication to mm. different data centers, I'm responsible for the SLAs and the Absolutely. consistency. Yeah. And, and I only have so much control because, you know, Amazon owns. Uh, or any guarantees over the service, right? Like if I roll my own replication, then I have to be able to answer how old is the data, for example. But who, whose responsibility is it to answer that question? It's mine. Whereas in a service such as Cosmos, where geo-replication is built in and is turnkey, there's even a consistency model that guarantees a bound on the staleness of the data, right? So I can say if I'm in New York writing data and I'm reading it from Tokyo, I can connect to the Tokyo endpoint and say, I want to have a query the data from New York and I want a bound of staleness of five minutes. So then it's, the service is guaranteed that it's going to give me an answer at the most five minutes old. So it could be better than that, right? But I'm giving it a, a worst case boundary of how, how late I want that to be, right? That's, that's, that's called bounded staleness. Spanner does it as well, which I, I want to point out because I believe they, Cosmos and Spanner, are the two most exciting NoSQL products in the cloud. Dynamo is popular, I'll say that, because obviously a lot of people are running in AWS and Dynamo is already there. Dynamo was the first one and, and you know, credit to Amazon forward thinking. They were the first one and they hit hard with Dynamo when it came out. And it does do some cool stuff, you know, they're still investing on it. But today, these different consistency models mixed with the roadmap to do this massive geo-replication or the capability today that Cosmos has, really in my, in my mind, I see Spanner and Cosmos as being this kind of like next gen of NoSQL databases in the cloud. Yeah. Right, right. So what are the consistency models available in Cosmos? So you can do strong, right? So strong means I want to have the guaranteed latest value of a record, right? So as the consistency models go, if you want everything strong, your system scales less, right? Because you always have to go through the unique source of truth and your latency gets higher because it means if I'm in Tokyo, but I want a strong read, it has to go all the way to New York to give me my answer, right? So, so it goes on from strong, all the way to, to eventual. But this is the thing. There's also intermediate consistency models there, right? So we have, for example, let me see here. We have bounded staleness, which is the one that I mentioned, right? When you give it a time and you say, I want to guarantee that my record is not going to be older than X. And this is implemented by Cosmos and Spanner, which is really cool. Now, 
Spanner actually does an extra one that Cosmos still doesn't have, but I checked with the Cosmos team and they say that they could implement it if they wanted to. So we'll see. Because Spanner, actually, you can give it an exact timestamp. So it's not just saying, I don't want a record that is older than five minutes. With Spanner, you can say, I want to see this record as it was four minutes and 35 seconds ago. So it's oh, cool. pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. But I did check with the Cosmos guys and they said, well, if we wanted to, that'll be really easy to implement. So maybe they will. We'll see what happens. That's a good thing about these cloud wars, right? I, I, I love the fact that every time somebody implements something, you know that the gears are turning in the other side to catch up, right? So, mm-hmm. so that's bounded staleness. Then another very popular one that actually, if Microsoft says that this is the majority of the people, sorry, of their users deploy this one, is session-based consistency. So that means if I write something, then I'd be able to see it right away. And as long as I am in my own session, everything looks strong to me, right? But it, not, it might not look strong to somebody else, right? So if somebody wants to read my data, they have to pick some of the other consistency models. But as long as I'm reading my own data, it has the, what's it called? Like the, it looks as, is, as if it was strong, right? I can always see what I'm doing to the latest point, right? So that's session-based consistency. Then there's another one, you know, as, as it loosens up, then it goes into what's called just consistent prefix. So it means I'll give you an image in, in time that is consistent. So I'm not going to give you, you know, one record from five minutes ago and another record from 10. At least if I'm, I'm going to give you something old, I'm going to give you the both records at the same time. So that's consistent, consistent prefix. And after that, it's just eventual. And eventual just means just give me whatever value the the record has right now, right? Eventually, it'll converge if, if you stop activity, right? So there's no real guarantee in eventual, but it obviously is the fastest one because it always, you know, if you have a replica in Tokyo and you're just querying in Tokyo and you're just picking cons- eventual consistency, it doesn't even have to go and check because it's, it's probably, there's multiple nodes in each geography, right? Because all this data gets replicated in region as well. It doesn't even have to go and check like the last time it synced because you just said eventual. It just has to go the closest server with the least load, take the value, and that's it, right? So obviously, eventual gives you the best performance, the lowest latency, but it gives you no guarantees, right? Now the thing is, you know, it's it's actually it's actually good to have some guarantees sometimes, you know, especially in terms of I just don't want to know any value. I want to have a, at least a guarantee that I can see my own values, or at least I have a guarantee on based on time, and like I said. In one data center, it might not be a big deal, but as we build these solutions globally, latency is still an issue, and these consistency models will become more and more useful. So in terms of the consistency models, is that something I set at the database level, and that's the level it is, or is it something I can specify at the time of querying? Meaning some queries, I don't need the, I know I don't need the latest, but other queries, I, I absolutely must have strong consistency. Yeah, so you can do it on the, the database level. So you can pick a default, right? So if you don't specify it, you'll get the default. But yeah, you can absolutely definitely overwrite it on a query level. And depending on the actors of your application and the type of processing they're doing, it's, that's exactly what you want to do, right? Some of the actors will demand strong consistency. Some of the actors could even be okay with eventual consistency, right? And then you get, you don't have to pay the cost of, of a strong read if you don't want to, because it's actually more expensive in the service if you want to do a strong read. Is This is both for Dynamo and for Cosmos. If you do a strong read, they actually consume more resource units than doing uh, eventual reads, right? Okay. Can I interact with Cosmos with you know good old SQL in addition to these APIs? 
Yeah, if you pick the document-based API, so DocumentDB, what it was before, they do have a SQL interface layer to work with the JSON that is fairly transparent in terms of, you know, if you know how to query SQL, it's same select from order by group type of structure. You will not need to really learn much about it, which is another thing that Dynamo doesn't have, right? Dynamo is not really a SQL interface. It's not super complicated to learn, but it's still not SQL-based. Spanner is SQL-based, which is good. And yeah, Cosmos can do SQL if you're using the DocumentDB interface. And if not, then you can use some of the other APIs as well. Okay. And in terms of being a DBA administering this product, how does indexing work? And what about things like sharding? It's very popular now. Let's talk about those things. So let's talk about first about the sharding bit, because all these NoSQL databases, they all scale out horizontally pretty much without without much user intervention, right? So usually they demand that you pick a sort of primary key or also known as like partition key. And depending on this primary key, usually it gets hashed and then it ends up on some computer, right? And this is the same model that Dynamo, Spanner, Cosmos uses, right? So in terms of design, you do want to have something that is going to partition well, right? Because if you pick just a few partitioning keys, then you might run into having hotspots. And if you have hotspots, then the solution is not going to perform as well, right? And this is the same with any type of distributed system, right? You want to have all your nodes really busy. You don't want to have one node out of an entire solution just being the, the hot node, right? And then you don't get the scalability, obviously, that you want out of the service, right? The sharding, though, it's done on its own. So you don't have to manage it, right? So you just have to pick a good partition key that is going to distribute uniformly or as uniformly as possible. And after that, the service takes over and does all the sharding on its own. And if it runs, you know, if let's say one node fills up, and it has to like split into some other machine, you don't even know. You can't even find out. It just happens under the covers, right? Fully managed by the provider, which is the same with, with Dynamo as well. Spanner does require to provision nodes, which I don't really like. I'm wondering if Google maybe down the line is going to change that. Both Dynamo and Cosmos work on request units in terms of provisioning performance. So as an administrator of the solution, you pretty much just want to make, make sure that you have enough units for what you're trying to do and also make sure that you can cover spiky or burst type scenarios in terms of your provisioning. Like I said, Dynamo and Cosmos are, are based on request units, so you can dial that up or dial it down. But Spanner is based on nodes, so you have to select the amount of nodes that you want to provision for your solution, which I, is my, my personal, I don't know if it's my personal thing or if I'm wrong about this or not, but I just don't like the concept of, of having to deal with, with literally with nodes when we're talking about a, a cloud pass type of solution. Because then it's like, well, yeah, I can put more nodes or I can decrease the amount of nodes, but then how, how long does that take to actually add or decrease resources in the system? Or how many nodes do I really know how many I need? And, and if I need spare capacity, then should I always have one extra node just in case and all that kind of stuff? I, I, I hope that down the line, obviously, I'm sure we'll have a lot of more clear guidance, but I wonder if maybe down the line, they'll change the resource consumption model closer to something like, for example, even BigQuery, right? Which does like literally cost by query type of thing, right? So very different from how Spanner today is based on provisioning performance by by nodes. Yeah. Okay. And then what about indexing? Do I do I have to manage my own indexes in Cosmos? Do I have to figure that out and create them? So you you can do as much as you want, which I think is interesting. And we can talk a little bit about optimizing now that we're talking about the indexes too. Because Cosmos will automatically index the fields in your data if you don't say otherwise. 
So if I don't really want to burden myself with micromanaging the indexing, I can just load data and let the service automatically index all the fields. And then every time I can use an index, it'll use it and that's it. If I do know that certain fields will never be used for a predicate, then I don't have to index them. And I can actually disable them and just say, you know, you know, this particular field, I will never search on this field and I'll save myself some storage. So that's, that's good. The other solutions, Dynamo, Spanner, you do have to create your indexes. But not just that, it's the fact that you also have to declare your indexes as well when you're working with Dynamo or Spanner, which I really don't like. This is a bit that I really don't like. When I do a query on Dynamo, I have to specify the index I'm using. So basically, it's as if I am the optimizer for the database engine. Now, on Spanner, there is an optimizer, but the documentation today, it still says that it's recommended that you declare the index explicitly because otherwise Spanner might not use it. So that leads me to think that down the line, probably that optimizer is going to get better and they might remove that completely, hopefully. Right. But right. today it still says that. And I don't like having the burden on the developer to have to call out the indexes explicitly, especially because most of these data developers have experience with relational. Some of them have tons of years of experience with relational. And all relational products, you know, Oracle, SQL, MySQL, Postgres, they all have cost-based optimizers. And usually we tell people, don't put the index explicitly. Right. Just let the software decide that for you. Don't try to be smarter than the optimizer, right? But this seems like there's some sort of trade-off where we say, you should go NoSQL. Oh, but now you went NoSQL, so you have to pay the price of going NoSQL by, you know, calling out your indexes explicitly. It's like... You know, why? Why? So I need to redeploy application code if I want to change my indexing strategy. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't like that. I, I really do not like that. I have the hope that based on what I see from Spanner so far, that this is going to not exist in the future because Spanner definitely has an optimizer because it can select some of the indexes automatically, but it just tells you, it warns you to not depend on that happening. Same with joins. So if Spanner does have a join engine as well, it can do hash joins and it can do loop joins. So hopefully that limitation will be lifted at some point, but Cosmos right now, like I said today, it's automatically indexed. You do not have to call out your indexes explicitly, which again, I like because it's similar to the relational experience and it doesn't force you to make that trade-off of, oh, you wanted a scale-out NoSQL database? Well, then now you're the optimizer, All right? I don't like that. Yeah, I, I can understand that. Okay, let's shift our focus to security. I mean, you can't be talking about cloud without talking about security. What security models are in place in Cosmos DB? So Cosmos is... You know, you can use the same type of thinking that you have in terms of security as your classic relational. You have your users, you have your roles, and you can protect your collections of documents, or you can protect your tables, and, and so on, right? There's a couple of big differentiators for Cosmos. So first one is that it does have encryption at rest built in, which Dynamo doesn't have. Dynamo says encryption is your responsibility, and you can do it in, with these libraries, but it's a client responsibility. Um, Cosmos does encryption at rest. You don't have to do anything. It's just Microsoft certifies it's encrypted at rest and they rotate the keys and they do everything. Now, somebody might say, well, yeah, that's really cool, but what are the odds that somebody's going to go into an Azure data center and steal my hard drive where that's my data is sitting, right? It's like, yeah, the, probably massive security. The odds are not particularly high, but it's all about compliance. And there are some compliance standards that request that data is always encrypted at rest, right? It's just a good practice. 
Yeah, yeah, why not? I mean, if, if they're going to roll it out on their own anyway, then why would say no? I don't care if they encrypt their data at rest. And keep in mind that, remember, there's an SLA on latency and throughput, and there's a certain amount of capacity that you request. So given the SLA of latency and throughput and the amount of capacity that I request, it shouldn't even be my problem if there's... Because usually people say, oh, I can encryption just makes everything slower. But there's an SLA on latency and throughput, and I have a, a fixed performance request units, right? So it's not really my problem if encryption means that Microsoft has to roll with an extra CPU core per node, for example, right? I don't care. I have an SLA on performance, and I pay for a certain amount of throughput. So yeah. it's not my problem, point. right? <laughs> Well, that's the whole point of, of this is outsourcing a lot of the, the management, which actually brings me to one other thing I'd like to cover, which is, you know, if I'm a DBA in, a, you know, a corporation and I find out that there are, you know, developers either using this or about to use this, you know, what do you think my role as a, as a DBA is in, in this management? So I don't have to do indexes. I don't have to do much in sharding. I have to maybe be involved in creating and design. You should, I believe, you should be involved as a developer style DBA. Hopefully, as a DBA, you through the years have gathered some experience about usually what's good and bad design in terms of not just for relational, but just in general, right? Depending on the specific system that you're going to deploy on. So I would think, I would like a DBA to be involved in the discussion, for example, to pick, you know, what's going to be, if you're going in the document type of design, then what's going to be the hierarchy for the JSON documents? So what's going to be the partitioning key for them? You do have to, as a DBA, definitely get involved in the security side of things, right? How are we going to structure our roles, our users, their access? Something else that we didn't touch on, but another, you know, side of security is nowadays with data sovereignty, you know, Cosmos, for example, once you deploy geo-replication, you can have policy-based geo-replication, right? So you could say, if I'm in Europe, I want my database to be replicated Germany, Ireland, UK data centers, my data never leaves Europe, right? So same thing, if you're in the US and you have some data that is not allowed to leave the US, well, you can say, I want to replicate East US, Central US, West US, my data never leaves the United States of America, right? It's very, very important for data sovereignty, depending on the type of data that you're consuming. Something else that the DBA absolutely needs to be aware of on what they're doing in, in terms of that. There is not a lot to do in terms of indexing if you don't want to, but if you want to really get in there and, you know, really maximize your company's investment, I'm sure you can sit down, like I said, you can micromanage which fields should be indexed and which shouldn't. So there's there's some work to be done there. And then the other thing is definitely somebody has to keep an eye on the performance metrics, right? Just because I provision performance doesn't mean, for example, that I provisioned enough or that I'm provisioning the right amount to deal with spikes and bursting, right? So there's still a DBA role there, I see. I don't know if it's a full-time DBA role just for that, but you know, as a as a, a little part or piece of a general DBA type of person, there's definitely stuff that they have to do or they should do if the company is going to roll out with something like Cosmos. I agree. And, and you know, as we talk, covered in a, a couple of episodes now, you know, the DBA role is not going away, but it is changing. And while you might not, you know, certainly wouldn't need a full-time DBA for one of these databases, you know, there, there still is a need and the DBAs can just do so many more. So you can, you know, you, you can administer way more servers in any of these cloud platforms than you ever could have in the, in the olden days. Yeah, you can stretch your DBA hours. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Let's relate this to anyone, more of our business users. What are some use cases for, for this type of database? 
So yeah, so I think there's two levels to think about the use cases. First is, am I building something that fits well with the APIs that Cosmos exposes, right? So if I'm building something that is a very simple type of like put and get interface, but it's going to be really important that it scales well, that you can scale horizontally, and then we can use the key value API, for example. If I'm building something that has, I would definitely important that it's schema free. It's important that it has a SQL interface. It's important that it has these geo-replication capabilities, then maybe I want to deploy Cosmos with the document API. If I'm deploying something, again, that I want to model something like a network, like a network of people, if I want to model a network of computers, a network of devices, for example, IoT nowadays is very, very popular, right? So you could shard by a device ID or a group of devices ID and the messages that they send, a lot of times they are schema-free or they can add, you can add more fields or more, let's say you deployed a sensor on some factory machines and down the line you thought of a new field that you want to add well you know it's very easy and flexible to do that with something like cosmos and it scales horizontally it's you don't have to worry too much about just having to grow that one server over time if you do need to use relational like there's also the question of what cosmos is not good for right right so if, if your data is truly relational so you see a design you can't figure out a design where you're not doing a lot of joins and where you have to do transactions that cross containers, you should still just deploy relational, right? In those scenarios, you should just still deploy relational. If you're doing really complex SQL, like you're using windowing functions and really you know, advanced analytical functions in your SQL, you probably want to look at something else. You probably want to look at just deploying maybe in a classic, a classic data warehouse instead of something like Cosmos. But if you're looking at something that the API fits for your use case and you want it to scale horizontally because you're going to get a lot of volume and you're even better if you're thinking that you can really use those geo-replication capabilities, then you have a really good use case. And that's something that I think is really exciting about both Cosmos and, like I said, Spanner down the line as well, really, is the scenarios that this type of geo-replication capabilities open up for, right? So having... I think I, I spoke with you before about something really cool that you could do, right? About having like, for example, tracking movement of ships or trucks or planes, even through geo-replication, geo-replicated databases is, is really neat, right? You can have very low latency by having different databases around the world track the movement of these objects, right? So you can have, let's say, a truck that leaves Montreal and is going all the way to California. And so when the truck leaves Montreal, it's it just connects to, like let's say, an Azure Traffic Manager endpoint. And based on the GPS coordinates, it knows that it just it's still in the Montreal area, connects to Montreal, works with Montreal with very low latency, right? And then as, as it moves along the geography, maybe it switches over to central U.S., but then the users in Montreal can do really cool things. They can say, oh, I wonder where that truck is in the central U.S., but I don't have to, as we go along, the distances get bigger. I'm not at the mercy of just eventual consistency. With a system like Cosmos, I can actually say, I want to know where this truck was, but I, I want it to be truth up to five minutes, right? I don't want to see, I want to guarantee that I'm not seeing something older than five minutes ago so that I know at least that, you know, I'm, I'm at, at worst, I'm seeing five minutes when the truck just passed, right? So very, very accurate at the same time. It's not just eventual consistency where you, you don't really know, right? So that one is, is really neat. And then obviously, like, you know, as the truck keeps moving along all the way, it can move to the West US if you wanted it to, right? At the same time, the experience at the object is very low latency because it keeps switching to the local copy of the database. And the experience for the different geographies 
is might not be low latency, but it has guarantees on consistency, right? It has a guarantee on time. It has a guarantee on, let's say, or a consistent prefix. If you don't even care about time, at least you know that you're always getting a consistent uh, result back. You're not just getting an eventually consistent result, which basically doesn't doesn't really tell you, right? It could be that the truck synced already had a further sync down the line but if you just go with eventual you don't really know if that happened yet or not right this right. type of capability where you haven't put a boundary on the staleness opens up you know really cool scenarios for these type of your replication direct right. your replicated databases yeah. and that is a new you know a new way of thinking that that we have to, we as designers need to a frame of mind that we as designers need to be in i, I really liked what you said there about you know, ships versus trucks, you know, a truck averages probably, you know, considering on the highway, probably 160 miles or 100 kilometers an hour in town, you know, lower, you may want that the fresher data, but a ship is very slow. So, you know, every hour is probably great, you know, depending on as long as you're not, you know, radar tracking or, you know, that kind of thing. And IoT, you know, we always, I always think at first when I thought IoT, I was always thinking a sensor on something in my home. Well, okay, it's, it may not move, but there are lots of things that are moving now and we are putting sensors on them, right? But that's a, that's a great point. But even the things that don't move still get a benefit, not in terms of the thing, but it gets a benefit in terms of the solution because the sensors in the homes in Montreal can write to the Montreal copy and get really, really low latency. And if you are in the Montreal office, you see the data from the Montreal sensors really fast, right? But at the same time, let's say you're a global company that just sells IoT solutions for houses. The people in California will see the sensors in California really fast. The sensors in California will write to the local database in California really fast. But if the people in California are interested in seeing the data from Montreal, they have guaranteed boundaries on the staleness from the data from Montreal, which is really the key thing, right? Because you and I can sit here and deploy a peer-to-peer replication topology of SQL servers all the way from California to Montreal. But we know there's no guarantee on the staleness of that data, and it can actually lag quite a bit depending on what's going on, right? So that, that is the key difference there, right? We are, we're deploying geo-replicated solutions that provide very low latency locally and provide guaranteed staleness boundaries if you're not local. Right. And that's, you know, in a, in a nutshell, that was one of the key things that you had mentioned in our first chat that got me really excited about the technology. So since there are, you know, really the focus is on Cosmos DB for this episode, but, you know, along the way you've compared it to its kind of key competitors. I'm sure there's a few others that we've missed, but I see these, the other two as the, the, the biggest ones. Are there any kind of strengths of, say, DynamoDB over Cosmos DB? Well, Dynamo is doing some really cool stuff nowadays where they're deploying some in-memory caches on preview right now. So I do believe that probably a, a solution that needs to scale horizontally, but doesn't really need to geo-replicate, and they just want pure raw speed, they can probably get that now with Dynamo on like really, really fast, probably like, you know, one digit or less a millisecond latency with these new in-memory caches. So if you're just looking for like a one region Formula One type of solution, probably Dynamo right now with those in-memory caches could be a good fit. The nice thing, again, is like what I was already mentioned before, this is a race. So maybe now that Dynamo is deploying in memory caches, maybe Cosmos will deploy memory caches eventually. Maybe Spanner will deploy the memory caches eventually, right? So this is a great time to just see all these massive companies compete with all their products. Yeah, and I mean, Amazon is not to be outdone, right? Oh, absolutely. It, it, they'll try to one-up the other two. And what about Spanner? Are there kind of some key strengths about Spanner that, that you saw over Cosmos TV? I like how Spanner is really trying to be very relational friendly. So, you know, Spanner is supporting 
cross-entity transactions, let's say. So you can have a regular, you know, I update the table here, I update the table there, I want a transaction to happen between them, and Spanner handles them under the covers. It even, you don't have to know if that transaction is actually crossing the boundaries of different nodes. Spanner will handle that under the covers. So I really like that focus that Spanner has on trying to keep those transactional semantics and those relational semantics still in a product that is horizontally scalable. Because it's kind of like, Spanner is not really NoSQL. Spanner is really like a modern, horizontally scalable, relational-ish database, which I really like. Because I really think that it just makes it a lot easier for people that are used to the relational paradigm to just switch over to it, right? And now, now that Spanner, eventually, when it goes global, I really, I'm really interested to see how well it's going to do to guarantee transaction consistency and, and you know strong reads and doing cross-table commits and all that stuff if it's going to cross geographical boundaries. Is it going to be like that? Is it just going to be a master so that it doesn't have to do cross-region cross, cross region transactions? Because that would be like, I would think the latency is really high to do that. But it's, it's exciting to see, like I said, to see these products being developed nowadays. Agreed. And, you know, just as you're mentioning these comparisons, I mean, knowing these nuances is another piece of, of cloud-enabled data platform consultants, whatever you want to call this person. You know, there, there's a career there, you know, understanding these differences and helping companies select the right tools for the right job. Because as much as the cloud public cloud platforms would love you to be all in on, their, on them and nothing else, I don't think that's reality. Yeah. I, you know, a company of any size is, uh, size is going to be using tools from all over the place and using the right tool for the job. And those tools change and you move around and stuff. So, you know, lot, lots of good opportunities, I think, for IT people in working with this. A lot of opportunity for data pros nowadays, seriously. If you thought that, oh, no, my DBA career is dead because, you know, let's say Microsoft is rolling out with Azure SQL database and it doesn't really need a lot of DBA anymore. Well, and just start learning some of these other NoSQL products. There's so much to learn about them. And there's so, like you said, so many nuisances and, and subtleties and to like see like what works in one, what doesn't work in the other, what's really good in one, but it's kind of annoying in the other. Somebody has to know these things, right? So right. definitely, definitely a field to mine there. And even if you don't have a you know a large training budget from your employer, it's so it's cheap. You you can spin this up for dollars of your own money. And you know we all I hope are investing our own you know time, effort, and even funds to you know in ourselves. So it's not like before where you couldn't I couldn't afford to you know buy a HP ML three eighty and stick it in my yeah. closet, right? Yeah, absolutely. You don't have space in your house to have like three racks and put a bunch of notes and simulate a scale out database. I mean, you can do it with virtualization nowadays, but still, it's not the same, right? So yeah, definitely easier to try it out and see what it's all about. And like what I mentioned at the beginning today, I, I hope I hope in our episode, this episode, is just that we piqued people's curiosity and interest on all these NoSQL products, but especially on Cosmos, which I think, again, I think it deserves a second look and it's kind of like reborn. And if anybody has any questions, obviously feel free to reach out. And that's a good point there, Werner. As we close things down, where can people reach you and follow you? Yeah, so if you can always reach me on Twitter at Warchav, that's W-A-R-C-H-A-V, or you can check out my personal blog at sqlturbo.com, or you can check out my professional blog at pythian.com as well. Okay, excellent. Well, I think we've covered the topic fairly well, and hopefully, as you said, people are fairly interested. That's all the time we had for today, folks. What did you think of today's episode? You can send us feedback at datascapepodcast at gmail.com. As always, have a great day in the Datascape. Navigating the Datascape.